Hello there, and welcome back to Southside Baptist Church's Sermon Audio Podcast. Tune in this week as Pastor Scott Smith continues his sermon series entitled Christ Esteem with a message entitled Proper Self-Worth. We hope this message will be a blessing to you. Have a great week. Well, this morning we are going to continue in uh, our series that we've been doing on Christ Esteem. Maybe you're new, or maybe you haven't been here for the whole series. I'll give a little plug. I would encourage you. We record our messages. If you're joining us online, we welcome you. Um, we record them and put them online, and so I would encourage you to go back and pick up from the beginning of the series. We started out by talking about how self-esteem, finding our esteem or worth in self, um, is lacking. We find that, uh, we will find that, we really know that to be lacking and that we need to really find our esteem, our worth, we need to get it somewhere else. And so I won't go any farther yet because we're going to talk a little bit more about that here in just a second. Um, Ran across an interesting story this week. Uh, In in his book, Accidental Empires, uh, author Robert Kringley Tells a, sto- tells a story about what happened in the early days of Apple Incorporated. I imagine many of you here, if you're an Apple person or an Android person, Apple started back in 1976. That's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? Uh, way back in the late 1970s, Apple had grown beyond the point that, uh, you know, it kind of started, I believe, they started in the garage, but it, it grew uh, and had grown by the late 1970s uh, to beyond the point that all the employees knew each other. So it was decided now that they were a grown-up company that they should all have name badges. So as is the corporate way, it was deemed that these badges should be numbered um, and the numbers assigned would be based on the order in which the companies, uh, excuse me, the employees had joined the company. Makes sense, right? I mean, here's what the author writes. Kringley writes this. He says, Steve Wozniak was declared employee number one. Steve Jobs was declared or was named employee number two, so on and so forth. If you all don't know, I think it was Wozniak and Jobs were the main ones who started. There was, I forget the guy's name. There was another guy that started with them. But Wozniak was declared employee number one, Jobs number two, and so on. The problem was... Steve Jobs didn't want to be named number two. He didn't want to be employee two. And so he argued that he, rather than Wozniak, should have the sacred number one since they were co-founders of the company and his name, last name started with J for Jobs and, and J for Jobs should come before W as Wozniak. So he argued that he should be employee number one instead of Steve Wozniak. Well, that plan was rejected. And when it was, he still wasn't done. He then argued that the number zero was still unassigned. And because the number zero came before one, he would be happy to take that number. And guess what? He got his wish. To which I say, selfish jerk, right? That's kind of, that's what we think of, right? Somebody demands the tab of their name. Friends, when you fight to be number zero, just so you can be first or just so you can be ahead of the person who's named employee number one, there's a problem, right? 
there's a problem. There's an unhealthy desire there, I believe, to be looked up to by others, to maybe a, a dangerous dependence on others' opinions or maybe even your own opinion and an unhealthy need to feel a certain way about yourself, which kind of brings us to where we are this morning. In this series that we've been in, we've been talking about how we should not seek to get our worth from self, but instead, and, but before we get there, why? Why should we not seek to get our worth from self? Because self, I know that I will always let me down. And just trying to feel better about myself, just trying to muster up my confidence, just trying to say, oh, I can do it in my flesh, I'm not perfect. And I will always fail. No matter how much we try to convince ourselves others otherwise, I myself will always fall short. I myself will always be lacking. Self can never truly give us the worth or esteem that we're really looking for. So the question is, what can? Friends, I hope you've learned in this series that where we should get our esteem from is not ourself, but where? It's from the Lord. We, get, we should get our worth, our value, our esteem from the Lord. He's the only one who can give us truly what we need to face. As Pastor Brandon talked about, all the stuff that's going on in the world. How do we face some of this stuff? Listen, we as humans fail. We, that was proved this week. The best policies and procedures can fail because we humans aren't perfect. Instead of self-esteem, we should long for Christ-esteem. I want to give you two verses. One of them is our memory verse that we've been looking through. But two verses, I, if you don't already have these memorized, they need to be on the top of your list, okay? First of all, Philippians 4, 13 says this. I can do all things. Say it with me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? I can do anything. I can face anything. I can do anything when Jesus is in me and I know that it's his strength working through me. The second verse is our memory verse is Galatians 2.20, which says this. Go ahead and say it with me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We've been talking about what this means, and we've been fleshing this out, and we've been thinking about this and processing this, because most of us in here know the fact that Jesus died for us, I've turned from, repented from my sins, and I put my faith and trust in him. But what does that mean for living our everyday life? Friends, it means that we should not seek to get our, why when we have Jesus do we seek to get our worth and our value and our strength from somewhere else? He is our strength, amen? Um, he is. So here's the main idea. If you got your outline this morning, this is kind of, this is before number one, it's our main idea, okay? Proper self-worth, and I, I use that word self-worth there, um, but really maybe some of you just want proper worth for ourselves comes from being in Christ. It doesn't come from self, it comes from being in Christ. And today, what I want to do this morning is I want to share from our text here in Romans chapter 8 uh, how being in Christ can give us what we are looking for when self 
can't. Okay? Number one. These are kind of benefits of being in Christ. Number one, here it is. First of all, friends, when you are in Christ, know that God is for you. You need to know that God is for you. He's not against you, friends. He is for you. So look at our text today in Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome. In verse 31, he says this. He says, what then shall we say to these things? Now, it sounds like he's wrapping something up, right? What should we say to these things? What's he talking about there, these things? Well, in the immediate context, he's talking about Romans chapter 8, in which uh, Paul is talking about God's calling of us to salvation. We look back a few verses. He talks about that we know that God works all things together for good. We'll look at that here again in just a minute. But he says in verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So God saved us for a purpose, and that is to work in our hearts and our lives to make us like Christ. Amen? And so what, shall, what then shall we say to these things? So that's the immediate context. But the greater context, and many commentators believe that he's really referring to all of what he's been talking about so far in the book of Romans. How he's really laid out the gospel. The fact that we're, we're sinners. Um, and, and apart from Christ, we are, we are headed to a, a eternity in hell. And without him, all we know how to do is sin. But the good news is that God loved us so much that he gave Christ to die for us. And he gave his son as an atonement for our sin and to pay the price that we could not pay on our own. And so when he says, what then shall we say to thee? What shall we say to all of this that, that yes, we're sinners, but God loves us and he saved us and he redeemed us and he's got a plan for our life and he's making us like Christ. What should we say to all this? Look at the second question here. It kind of really focuses in on what he wants us. If God is for us, so that's what he's really saying. What he's been saying all this point is, even though we're sinners, even though we're separate, even though without Christ we're going to spend eternity in hell, God loves us and he died for us and he really doesn't hate us, but he loves us. So if God is for us, and listen, this is not an if as in, uh, eh, maybe, maybe he loves us, maybe he's for us, right? He's talking to believers here. And the word, um, it's a conditional uh, uh, word, but it, it really speaks more of, it, it demands the answer that God is for us. It really could be translated since God is for us or because God is for us. What does it say next? Who can be against us? Listen, since God is for us, who can be against us? If God, I want you to think about this for a minute. If God, the almighty creator of the universe is on our side and he is behind us and he is with us. And probably we could better say that we're on his side. Amen. Um, if that is true, friends, then who could be against us? I know what some of you may be thinking right now. Pastor, there's a lot of people against us. There's a lot of people fighting against Christians today, right? Um, there are, there are people who hate Christians who maybe not us specifically, but in general, um, uh, there are lots against us. There are those who have a different worldview and are fighting for their worldview. They don't like Christians. There are, there are those who don't like what we have to say. They don't like for us to be evangelizing and telling others about Jesus because listen, you believe what you believe, but I'm going to believe what I'm going to believe. And you need to not force that down my throat. 
There are, there are those who just don't like God's word and don't like what it stands for and don't like some of the truths that God tells us in his word that God created us all in his image and that he created men and women distinctly. The world doesn't like that. And so, Pastor, you, you say, Pastor, um, uh, there are many who are against us. So if there are many against us, Pastor, what is Paul really saying here when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Um, here's what I believe it means. What I believe Paul's really saying here is, listen, since God is for us, or if God is for us, because God is for us, who can, who can really prevail against us? Who can really, not just who can be against us, but who is going to succeed against us? To which the answer demands a what? No one. No one can, right? Nothing or no one can prevail against those who are in God's family. Why? Because we have God on our side, amen? God is stronger. God is bigger. God is greater. Listen, um, being on, knowing Christ, knowing the Lord is, is like, it's like having the big neighborhood bully on your side, right? Uh, except God's not a bully. It's like having the biggest, strongest dude on your side. Uh, when we were in high school, there was a group of, uh, of us guys that hung around together. And, um, the one of, one of the guys, the one who was probably, um, you know, you do things in high school that, you know, you're not proud of and so forth. And uh, I was not a fighter, but this guy was a fighter, but he was a good bit shorter than I was. And so um, anytime, sometimes we would run in as a, as a group to others. And so he was kind of short, but he hung around several guys that were like myself. I was this height in high school and before. And, uh, he, you know, he hung around several others. And so he ran into somebody and one time and, and the person looked at all of us and he said, listen, he said, you hang around with the big ones, right? You make sure you've got somebody that has your back. And that's kind of how it is when God's on our side. Listen, we're not trying to beat anybody up, but listen, who can be against us? Who can prevail? Sometimes we think the world's against us. Friends, don't worry. God's got it all in control. Listen, God's more powerful than anything or, or any philosophy, any, any group, any nation, any of these things that may, you may seem like they're winning in the world today. Guess what? They can't outpower God. Like being, being with the Lord is like having the wind at your back. You know, I used to, when I was a kid, I'd ride my bicycle around the neighborhood and uh, I lived in South Carolina, so it wasn't like Indiana. It wasn't flat everywhere. And there were, I don't know, how many of you used to like to ride your bike as a kid? Okay. Now, if you grew up in Indiana, you're not going to be able to relate to this, probably. But in my neighborhood, there were hills. And some hills were bigger than others. And so there were certain hills that I would avoid going up. <laughs> I would go a different way, even if it was longer, because I didn't want to have to go up that hill. But what I did enjoy doing is when I maybe came back home, I enjoyed going down that hill, right? Because you could gain some steam and you felt like, man, you know, I hope nobody gets in my way because I'm going to run right over them. I think, you know, that's kind of the way it is with having the Lord. It's like having the most firepower. It's like having the biggest army. There is no one or no thing stronger than God, friends. So when God is for you, what do you have to worry about? What's the answer? Nothing, nothing. So some of you may be saying, well, pastor, okay, I understand that. 
But pastor, how do I know God is for me? Uh, It seems like in my life sometimes that God is against me and that he's not for me. Well, I want us to look at verse, the next verse, verse 32, because I believe um, Paul is giving an argument here, how we as believers know that God is for us. Verse 32, verse 31, he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Then he, he uses an argument. It's kind of a greater to lesser argument. Paul says this, he says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he would not with him also freely give us all things. In other words, listen, if God did something as drastic as giving his son, delivering his son up on the cross to pay for our sins, how awesome is that, right? But how great is that? Then why do we question him if he's on our side when he did that for us? Why do we question if God is for us? Why do we question if God has our best interest at heart when God gave his son for you. God, Romans 5, 8 tells us this. God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. So here's the deal. Before you were even saved, before you even knew God, before you were in a relationship with him, God had already prepared the way for you to come into fellowship with him. God had already taken care of your sin before you knew your sin was a problem. How awesome is that? So how can we say then that God, God, are you against me? God, why are you letting this happen? All that kind of stuff, friends. Here's the one thing we need to know is no matter what happens, God is what? For you. He is for you, friends. He is not against you. Now, Many people think God is against them, but God is not against them. Uh, you know what he's, God is against? Sin. That's exactly right. God is against sin. He has to punish sin. But here's the thing. He wants to forgive you. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this. says, God is not willing or God does not want for any to perish. What? but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't want you to die. God doesn't want you to spend eternity in hell. He wants you to simply repent of your sins and trust in him as savior and be a part of his family. That's what he wants. Because when we do that, friends, when we put our faith and trust in him, then like I said, I know we think of maybe God's on our side, but it's more we're on God's side. And God is for us. God is for us. I just want you to... Nail that in your mind. If we're going to, here's the thing that should give you Christ's esteem in anything you're doing. God is for you. Don't ever, ever, if you're a believer, if you've trusted Christ as your savior, don't ever let the devil get it in your mind that God is against you. He is not against you. You say, well, pastor, you don't know what I've done. Yeah, you're right. I don't, but he does. And guess what? He said that he will accept Jesus's death as payment for your sin, all your sin, past, present, future, done, complete, over with. And and he's covered it and he's for you. Friends, doesn't that give us freedom as we sang about this morning to live for Christ? Absolutely it does. To know that only glory awaits us. How awesome is that? Now, Just because God is for us doesn't mean that you'll always get your way. So some people want to teach, right? 
You know, God is for you. You name it, you claim it, you think of it, and God will do it for you. God is not a genie in a bottle. Um, it does not mean you always get your way. It doesn't mean you'll always get what you want. It doesn't mean that you won't ever have any trouble in this world. Friends, what it does mean is this, that God wants what is truly best for you. Here's the best way I know how to explain it. And maybe if you're younger, if you're a teen or a kid, maybe, maybe you won't understand this yet. But if you're a parent, you will understand this. Um, don't you want the best for your kids? You want the best for your kids, but that's not always a Ferrari. Right? That's not always easy street. Right? Sometimes you know what's best for them is for them not to have what they want. Sometimes God allows us to have what we want to teach us that maybe we really don't want that. Friends, here's the deal. What, what it means God is for us, God wants the best for us. And he's always working that out. Um, I want you to look back just a couple of verses to verse 28. I think it's going to be on the screen a little bit before our text this morning. But verse 28, you know this verse, right? And we know that all things work together, what? For good to those who love God. To those who are the called according to his purpose. So friends, if you're a child of God, if you're part of his family, if you've been born again, then guess what? You can count on the fact, friends, that God is for you. He wants what's best for you. And he's working all things out in your life. Even the things that are not pleasant, even the things that are difficult, you can know that God is working in all of that, friends, to bring good in your life out of it. And to bring you to the full measure of Christ. If God, if Christ is in you, friends, God is for you. Amen? Number two, not only when you're in Christ is God for you, but the second benefit of being in Christ is this, is that when you're in Christ, friends, nobody, no one can take that away from you. Nobody can take that away from you. Look at verse 33. Um. We sang about this this morning before we get to the verse here. Just go ahead and leave it up there. But um, we are saved by God's grace. Amen? We are not saved by our effort. So if there's nothing I can do, if God's salvation is a gift to me, then um, I, I didn't have to do anything to earn it. Okay? And so God has gifted salvation. It is a gift. It is by his grace. It is not by my works and by my effort. So look at verse 33. Verse 33, Paul continues. This is kind of a, uh, it's, in many, it's called a, uh, it may have even been sung as a hymn in the early church. It's a hymn of security, if you will. And, and how poetic it is that Paul uses these questions. He says in verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? So if you're saved, who shall bring a charge? Who shall bring an accusation against God's elect? If you know Christ as your Savior, you have been, and we'll talk about this in a little bit more in a minute, you have been pardoned of all of your sin. And so who can bring a, a, a charge against God's elect? And here's the answer that Paul gives to that. He doesn't say this specifically, but in essence, he's saying no one, right? Look at what he says. He says, it is God who justifies. And what does that word justifies mean? It, it, here's, you need to know this, okay? It's a biblical word. 
We don't really use that much outside of talking about theology or the Bible and so forth. But you can think of it this way. Justifies means being right with God or just as if I'd never sinned. Okay. So who is it who justifies? Who who is the one who, who can declare us righteous? The only one. God, right? So who can bring a charge against God's elect? Paul's answer is nobody. Why? Because that's up to God. That's a God thing. Amen. And it doesn't matter um, what anyone else says or what charge they may bring against us or what accusation they may bring against you, friends. Only what God says matters. Amen? Look at verse 34. He follows up with another question. It's really just saying the same thing slightly differently. He says, who is he who condemns? Who is he who, who declares guilty and sentences to punishment? Who is it that does that? Does, does the devil declare us guilty? We are guilty and before God. God is the perfect one. Amen. He is the holy one. He is the almighty one. He's the one and he has uh, entrusted that responsibility ultimately to Christ. So he finishes the, sentence, the, the verse here. He, who is he con- who condemns? We know that the answer there is it's God. God's the only one who can condemn us. But, but look at how he answers this. He says, it is Christ, he's been entrusted with that, who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So the the only one who can condemn us is the one who died for us and gave his life for us, rose from the grave for us, is now sitting at the right hand of the Father and is praying continually for you if you're a child of God. So why should we allow the devil's tricks to even stand against us? Amen? It is our Savior who will judge us. What do we have to fear? Here's what we need to understand. One of the devil's main tactics is to accuse the brethren. One of the devil's main tactics is to bring a charge against us. Um, Many times it's just... He's trying to cause us to doubt what God has done in our lives. You know what? What you've done is so bad, God could not forgive you for that. If you ever think that, that is not from God. That's from Satan. Um, if you constantly are being reminded of all the bad things that you used to do, and not in a context of using that in your testimony, but you're reminded of those things in the sense that it's paralyzing you in how you live for the Lord. That is not God. That is the devil. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the one who wants to cause us to question our salvation. He is the one to try to make us think, how could God save me? Surely all the things I've done are too bad. And in the process, friends, what he's really trying to do is to paralyze us in our faith. Once you're saved, once you've responded in faith to Christ for what Christ has done for you, and as John chapter 3 says, you've been born again by the Spirit of God into the family of God, your name is written in the book of life, and nothing and nobody, including yourself, can take that away from you. If you're truly trusting in Christ and not yourself for salvation. Um, Here's what you need to remember. 
When the righteous, almighty judge of the universe declares you not guilty, guess what? You are not guilty. That's what Paul is saying here. He's the only one who can declare guilty or not guilty. And he has clearly said in his word that when we put our faith and trust in Christ, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so when we hear the word of God, we're either going to trust that, you know what, I believe that that is true. I believe that that is a promise of God, and I am going to bank my life now and my eternity forever on that truth, or I'm going to continue to try to do it on my own. And if it's based upon what his promises say and what his word says, friends, then listen, it doesn't matter how the devil wants to make us think. It's the reality of God. And when someone tries to accuse you or when the devil tries to condemn you or make you think that way, whether it's Satan or whether it's other Christians or whether it's the world itself, friends, or even if the world tries to, somebody tries to, the devil tries to get you to think you're not worthy, here's what I want you to think in your mind. You know what? You're right. I'm not worthy. But Jesus is. See, what the world tells us to do when the devil when we feel that condemnation and that's really, that's really conviction of the spirit before we know Christ. Right. But what, here's what the world tries to tell us to do. Just don't think about that. You know, put it out of your mind, ignore that. No, you're not that you're this, but in ourselves, we're not that in ourselves. We are sinners in ourselves. We're not worthy. And so what the world tries to get us to do is just push all that off and just to think better about yourself. No, you can make yourself better. You can, you can make up for what you did. No, you're not the person you used to be. And if that's just in yourself, it's, it's, it's dead. It's lacking. But when, it's in, when we trust Christ with that, and we need to admit that, yeah, you know what? I'm not worthy, but Jesus is. And I'm going to stake my eternity in this camp. See, Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Listen, we think we know it is, and when we follow ourselves, that's where it leads. But we repent, and we turn, and we put our faith and trust in Christ, and he fills us from inside. He changes us, as we talked about the last couple of weeks. We, we are regenerated, and we have a new heart and a new spirit, and we live in that, and we have, the, we have confidence because it's Christ in me, not because it's me in me. And I can now live knowing that yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I'm unworthy. Friends, but Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And there is nothing else I need to do. How many of you know what a pardon is? You heard that term before? Okay. We don't talk about that. You used to hear it, I think, in the news a lot more and so forth. A pardon is, uh, it is according to Cornell Law School, a pardon is the use of executive power, okay? So it can happen on a couple of different levels. When we talk about our government, the president of the United States can pardon someone. Governors can pardon someone. I don't know, maybe others, but those are the two big ones I know. But a pardon is the use of executive power to release an individual to whom it is given from the punishment of a crime. So, Maybe somebody has been accused wrongly and they appeal to the governor or to the president that, you know what, I'm wrongly imprisoned and would you please pardon me? Maybe that's the case. Or even if they are guilty, 
for some reason or another, they can appeal to the governor, they can appeal to the president for a pardon. In the United States, if someone receives a full presidential pardon, the consequences of their sentence is fully absolved. In other words, their punishment, they don't have to serve it anymore, whatever it is. So that even though they may even have been guilty of a crime, if the president pardons you, they no longer have to serve the sentence. Now, I, along with one of my fellow jurors, just heard recently, as I had to do some jury duty, the specifics of, of some of the things about our court, courtroom and so forth, and um, all of that. But um, according to the Supreme Court of the United States, I want you to listen to this. You know, there's some debate about this, but the Supreme Court has actually spoken about this. According to the Supreme Court, a pardon blots out guilt and makes the offender as innocent as if he had never committed the offense. I want you to hear that again. In quotes, the Supreme Court says that the, uh, a pardon makes the offender as innocent as if he had never committed the offense so that that person can never be charged with that crime again. Friends, in Christ, we have been pardoned but better. It's even better than a presidential or a governor's pardon. Because if somebody's pardoned for that, they're pardoned, I believe at least, even for that specific offense. They can't, you know, whatever, go out and do something. But friends, when we are in Christ, we have been pardoned by God for all of our sin. Past, present, and future. Now, that doesn't give, shouldn't give us a license to sin, Amen. Because if we've been pardoned by Christ, we know that that's not a life we want to live anymore. We don't want to live for self. We want to live for Christ. Um, and, but friends, in God's court, because of what Christ has done, we can never be charged with sin again. Doesn't that free us to live for him? Amen? Because it's already been taken care of at the cross. Friends, we can live with Christ's esteem, knowing that when we're in Christ, God is for us. Amen? That when we're in Christ, nothing, friends, nothing can take that away from us. And the third thing I want to share with you this morning is this. Friends, when we are in Christ, you can overcome any circumstance. When you're in Christ, you say, Pastor, what's the blessing of being in Christ? The blessing of being in Christ is, friends, that he makes us overcomers. Let's look at the rest of our text this morning. Look at verse 35. Paul is kind of building here in these questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Verse 34, who is he who condemns? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And so Jesus died for us. He demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If that love is so great and we have trusted him as Savior, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If you are in the Lord, if you're in a relationship, if you're in fellowship with him, no one can separate. That's the, 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 the answer there is nobody, Amen. It is no one. Now, the question here says who. Uh, the, Greek, it's, the Greek word here is an interrogative pronoun, and it also can mean what or which. So it says who, but if you see by the next sentence, the next question, 
Uh, he's really talking about circumstances. Really should maybe be a what. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, uh, a common word for adversity, shall adversity separate us from God? No, not if we're in him, amen? Shall distress, trouble, feeling like life is closing in on you, does that, does that take away your relationship with Christ? Not at all, not at all. Uh, shall persecution, absolutely not. Friends, in fact, that, that'll drive us closer to Jesus, amen, uh, being, being persecuted for the faith. Shall famine or nakedness, speaking of physical need, does that separate us from Christ? If we have, uh, have needs, it, it, absolutely not. It says, or peril or sword, shall any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is no. Friends, none of these circumstances keep God from loving us, amen? He loves us no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in. Look at what Paul says in verse 36. He says, as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Friends, I believe Paul here is bringing his personal testimony and letting that ring out. Even if it's persecution for Christ's sake, that can't separate us from the Lord. That doesn't separate us from his love. He still loves us. He has us in his hand. He will not let anything happen to us that does not have a purpose in our lives. Amen. Look at what he says next in verse 37. So he just said, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. None of the, there's nothing that can. Verse 37, but he goes a step further. He says, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So we are not only not separated from him, but we are allowed to overcome the things that come at us in our life through Christ. The word that's translated more than conquerors here is a Greek word, hupernikao. It comes from two Greek words, one hooper meaning over or more than, uh, the, second one, the second part meaning nikao, or to gain an exceptional victory, or to overcome. So it is, we are more than, we are over conquerors, we are, we're really overachievers in that area as Christians. He's saying we have more than enough to overcome anything or to conquer anything that life, the devil, People throw at us in Christ. You have more, everything and more of what we need. Amen? No circumstance can defeat us. No, no difficulty can keep us down. No trial can triumph over us when we are in the Lord. I don't know if you've thought about your life in relation to this. You know, we get so stressed out when we're going through stuff, don't we? Anybody get stressed out when you're going through stuff? Okay, little confession time here. Um, and listen, we know hindsight's twenty twenty, right? But you know, when I look back on my life, at some of the difficult things that I went through in my lifetime, and what I went through, I'm sure, is not as difficult maybe as some of the things you went through and so forth. Everybody, we may have our own level of difficulty of what the things that we've went through in our life. But when I look back at those things and I think about those things, they weren't pleasant at the time, right? And listen, I wouldn't want to go through them again, but I can definitely say that I would not be the person I am today without the difficult things that I've gone through. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that, that now I can even thank God for many of them. 
because they have brought me to where I am today. And you know what helped me through them? What helped me through them is that knowing that God was for me, knowing that nothing could separate me from him, nothing could take him away from me, and knowing that in him I can overcome anything. Friends, that helped me to get through those difficulties. That's what we as Christians need to get through. The last couple of verses here in chapter 8, Paul gives such a poetic end to this hymn. It is so beautiful. I gave you two verses already to memorize. Boy, I'd encourage you, if you don't already know this, memorize these two. Verse 38 says this, For I am persuaded, Paul says, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He, ends, uh, he, he finishes out this section where that he started there in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He says, shall persecution, shall tribulation, shall distress, or any of these things? No. He says, I am convinced that death itself cannot separate me from God. Well, we should know that. Amen? In fact, death means we get to see him face to face. So why should we fear that, Right? He goes on to say, listen, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. Listen, there is the, the, the devil, the demons, nothing. No, no, no evil person in this world can separate me from Christ. So there's no reason to fear. Amen. I am eternally his. Nor, look at what he says next, nor things present, nor things to come. So nothing I can go through now or nothing I can go through in the future can ever separate me from the love of God. Nothing I, listen, I know so many people that worry about things that actually never happen in their lives. Why does Jesus tell us never, work, never to worry? Because he's got this. He's got this. He, he already knows. Look at, in verse 39, he says, neither height nor depth. Now, didn't get into studying this a lot, but what, what he says he's referring there to is neither height, talking about even the height of the stars. Nothing in the universe can separate me from God. There's nothing out there one day that's going to take you away and take you from God. Okay, so stop standing out with a flashlight and looking up, okay? All you're going to see is Jesus come back one day. There's nothing, no depth. There's nothing under the earth that can separate you from God. Nor, listen, in case he didn't cover it all, he says, nor any other created thing. There's nothing that can separate you from, from, from the love of God except for your sin. And if you repent and turn to Christ, friends, you can be united with him. Here's what helps me face anything. That is the fact, friends, knowing that I've been born again, knowing that I'm a child of God and I am his and that my name is written in heaven. It's written in the book of life. I know that nothing can separate me, as Paul said here, from the love of Christ. I know that nothing can come between me and him. I know that he is always there for me. I know that he will never leave me nor forsake me, friends. I know that he has a purpose in every difficulty that I go through, and I know that he is with me no matter what. Friends, that is Christ's esteem. That's what we need to live with. I can do all things through what? Christ who strengthens me. I want to close this morning with a story that I believe illustrates this so well. 
a circumstance, sometimes the physical circumstances, even health and things that maybe we're born with, we think are things that keep us from being where we need to be in Christ. There was a documentary out just in 2021, a film, a documentary called My Beautiful Stutter. I don't know if anybody saw that or not, um, but My Beautiful Stutter is a film, a documentary that follows five kids who suffer from stuttering. Ages 9 to 18 from all over the United States and from all walks of life who after experiencing a lifetime of bullying and being labeled as with that stigma, meet other kids who stutter but are enrolled at an arts program, arts-based program called SAY. In the documentary, at one point, viewers are introduced to a young lady named Kate. Kate has learned to live honestly, if not defiantly, with her stutter. In fact, she refuses to refer to her way of speaking as an impediment. Instead, she has learned to accept who she is. In the tour that she gives in the film, Kate is giving a tour of her room. And in her room, she has notes written to herself, put up all around her room, reminding her of her uniqueness and her value in the Lord. But she spends most of her tour on a poem written by a lady by the name of Erin Schick that obviously means a lot to her. It's a short little poem. I don't know if this is all of it or not, but here's what the poem says. It's written, it says, barn owls communicate with mates and offspring using a complex system of hissing, screeching, squawking, and facial muscle manipulation. Survival for them is dependent on creating a voice so unique that it can be recognized by their loved ones in an instant. She goes on to say this, I argue that like the barn owl, the cause of my stutter is not neurologic. She says, it's got to be something deeper, something desperate to be remembered. This is not a speech impediment, but my voice is an instrument. My stutter, its greatest symphony. My speech composed by God. What a perspective, amen? This young lady has not only learned to live with her stutter, but to view what many consider a speech impediment as not an impediment at all, but actually a gift from God. Oh, that we all can have that kind of perspective, amen? Friends, how do we get that perspective? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You are valuable because God made you. You are valuable because God loved you enough that he sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. Before you ever knew you needed him, he made the way that you could be reconciled to him. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're watching online and you've never trusted Christ as your savior. Friends, God is standing with his arms wide open. What do we have to do? We have to admit that we're, we're a sinner. We have to admit that our sin separates us from God. We're not worthy on our own, but we know the one who is, and we believe that he is revealed to us in this word. His name is Jesus, and he gave himself as a spotless, sinless sacrifice for your sins.
that if you'll believe that he died on the cross to pay for your sins and that you'll trust in that. Here's what God said. God says, I offer you my son. I will accept his death on the cross as payment for your sins. And in, in exchange, I will give you his righteousness. Friends, do you believe that Christ did that for you? Would you receive him? Believe and receive that he did that for you and trust him as your savior today. And let your life start living with Christ esteem. Maybe you're here, maybe you're watching and you've already trusted Christ as your savior, but you've been trying to live your life in your own power. Friends, listen, um, we, we, are, we should not just try to muster up confidence of feeling better about ourselves. The reason we can have confidence is because as believers, Jesus is living in us. He's given you his Holy Spirit to live in you and through you each and every day. Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to, to use you as a tool, as an instrument of God? Listen, we think, oh, wow, well, okay, pastor, I've got to continue to grow. I've got to continue to do this. No, you know what you need to do? You need to say, here I am, Lord, send me, use me. And God will begin to do his work in you and through you. Would you submit yourself fully in whatever areas you have it today to him? Let's pray. Most gracious heavenly father, Lord, you know, those who are here, who are watching, who need to trust you as savior. Lord, I pray right now, Lord, that you would just convict them, help them to know that this is, the, this is what they need, that you are who you say you are and you did this for them, that they just need to trust you. Lord, there are those that need to, that need to find their worth, their value, their esteem in you, not in the opinions of others, not in the opinions of themselves, not in trying to just make themselves feel better but because you loved them and died for them and want to work in them and through them lord help us to seek our esteem only in you and you alone friend if you're here would you trust christ today would you put your put your your worth and your value totally in him and in nothing else standing on his sufficiency in all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to Southside Baptist Church's weekly sermon podcast. If there's any way that we can help you, or if you're looking for your next steps to further your journey with Jesus Christ, please contact us at info at southsidesbc.org. Thanks and have a great week.